what was originally planned to be a sermon, a <coughs> topical expository sermon uh, looking at six texts of Scripture. Uh, I'm, I've whittled down to one. Now, it was originally meant to be, I think, eight or nine, and I've, I've even slashed that number a bit just to keep our focus on the topic that we're looking at. But as I got here this morning, I realized for me to attempt to do all six passages would just be sort of silly and, and probably arrogant on my part. So what we're going to do is, rather than look at six passages, we're going to look at one. Just look at one. And that'll help me, hopefully, preserve a little bit of my voice for this evening, at which case um, we're going to go no holds barred as hard as we can go, and I'll have six more days to, to heal up. But I want to, I want to make it through the day. So, Psalm 1, let's read the entire psalm. And then we'll pray. And then after the, the message, we'll, we're going to do our prayer time a little differently as well. This is God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water <coughs> that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You that You, you know our going out and our coming in. That You've actively, purposefully, Set Yourself to watch over us in all points of our life. Because of Your love for us, we can't get away from Your oversight and Your care. We thank You for being such a good shepherd to us with an all-seeing and watchful eye. We pray that You'd come and You'd help us to understand Your Word pray that you'd teach our hearts with very plain and simple truths. We pray that you would do exactly what we just sang in the psalm, that you would search our hearts, that you'd know us, that you'd see if there'd be any unclean way in us, and that if there is, you'd expose it to us, that you'd give us the willingness of heart and soul not to flee from Your revelation, but to admit what You've showed us to be true and to come to You to find healing, to find salvation from our sins. And Lord, we thank You for any advancement that we might have seen in grace 
over the past six days. Lord, we attribute it all to You. You have been there with us along the way. Lord, please teach us from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, we see the land that was promised to the nation of Israel after their rescue from Egypt, described by God, this is Exodus 3.8, described by God as a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, whether you want to take that as sort of hyperbolic or metaphorical, uh, the, the point remains, God is saying, I've got a land for you that is literally abounding and overflowing with everything that you could possibly need for sustenance as well as delight or joy. Nobody needs honey to live on. I've been scooping teaspoons of honey this week so thick I have to chew it up in my mouth. But I don't, I don't need that to survive. God's saying, I'm going to give you everything you need and plus things that will just bring joy and delight to your, your taste buds. And that's the way He describes it. A good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And He goes on to say in verse 17 of that chapter, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to, a, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. In chapter 33, God commands Moses, Exodus 33, 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. <coughs> In Leviticus 20, 24, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess. A land flowing with milk and honey. That, that's just four references. There are more. Now move forward a few years and try to imagine the Israelites sitting and waiting with excitement and curiosity for 40 days while 12 spies have been sent out to survey and examine this land. They're waiting to hear the report. And they wait. Forty days is, is quite a while for, for 12 men to just be gone. They don't have cell phones. They can't check in. They can't text. They're just gone. Who knows what's happened to them? But they're waiting, anticipating. And then the spies return, and they're given their report. And you can almost picture the nation of Israel on the edge of their seats waiting. Tell us about this land. And you might can imagine their surprise when the spies begin to give their report. And I just picture the nation, you know, whoever's the closest is sort of clamoring to hear. What's it like? What's the land like? Tell us. We read in Numbers 13, 27, they said, We came to the land to which you sent us. It, and they're waiting. It what? It flows with milk and honey. Now from that little exercise, we can draw out this doctrine. When God describes something, He gets it right. If God describes something, He gets it right. It's, none, it's nothing more or less than exactly what God had set forth to them 
repeatedly. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if we wanted to draw out an application from that for ourselves, we could say the application is that God's descriptions should shape our expectations. If you can imagine a, a piece of clay on a potter's wheel, and he's pumping the pedal and it's spinning, and that the potter puts his hand to the piece of clay and the, the clay and the hand come together and the friction begins to rub, whatever, whatever pressure is, is applied by that hand, that's what's going to shape the, the pot. If he pushes in a certain place, the clay is going to go in at that place. And if you've ever tried to do this, you know it's, it's really almost uh, hard to control. You don't want to push too hard, but before long you've got something flopping and, and throwing clay everywhere. The clay is, is going to be shaped by the potter's hand. Wherever the hand pushes in, the clay goes in. Wherever the pressure is let up, the clay comes out. That's how the expectations in the hearts of the people of God are to be shaped by or conformed by the Word of God. Wherever He puts emphasis... That shapes our expectations. Where He doesn't, that shapes our expectations in a different way. But whatever God has said about a thing, that's what we should expect. No more and no less. Now last week we were able to see from various perspectives the salvation that we've received from God. And in light of that salvation, we should expect a particular way of living. Namely, obedience to God's commands. Now today we're going to look at what was originally going to be six texts. We're just going to look at one where the Holy Spirit describes a Christian. God describes a Christian. And then we're going to see what kind of life or lifestyle we should expect from that Christian, from that person. Again, God's descriptions should create our expectations or should, or should shape our expectations. And my, my contention is that our expectations in this regard should be of a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with the name of the Christian on it. When God describes a Christian, that's what we ought to expect of a Christian. If, if I claim to be a Christian, then what God describes a Christian to be, that's what I ought to expect of myself. If God describes a Christian and you claim to be a Christian, that's what I ought to expect of you and vice versa. And, and, and the reason that we're doing this and, and taking what's now going to be another extra week, but really compiling these texts of Scripture together, the reason that we're doing this is because I want you to see that this topic pervades the Scriptures, especially the New Testament. All the, the other passages that we're going to look at next Lord's Day are New Testament texts. Uh, this is not some remnant of Old Covenant legal theology. This is just the way God has always described His people. This is what it means to be a person of God. So then Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, I was thinking it seems like this, this is sort of the go-to passage for whenever somebody is uh, called upon to preach and have very little notice. Typically, you go to Psalm 1. Psalm, Psalm 1 is a very simple and plain text. It's very, very easy to just dwell upon and draw out from it. 
Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. This psalm establishes two kinds of people in the world. The blessed and the wicked. If you're in this room, you're either the blessed man or woman or you're wicked. There are not two options. There's not um, a middle ground choice. You're either blessed or you're wicked. Our focus is going to be the former, the blessed man. How is a Christian described in this passage? We see it in the first Opening words, blessed is the man. The Christian is the blessed man. <coughs> As most of you know, the term blessed means literally happy. It means pleased or satisfied with the state of things. Remember when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon. She had heard... And so she comes to see and she surveys his kingdom and she's, you can imagine how heads of state act. They're just sort of walking around and surveying the different high points and the things that make a kingdom a kingdom and she's observing how things function in Solomon's kingdom. She surveys the kingdom under his wise reign and she says, typologically I believe, I believe that this is a picture of those who serve under the greater Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. She says, happy are your men. Happy are your wives. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. That word happy that's used in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9 is the same word that's used for blessed in Psalm 1. She was astonished that those under the rule of Solomon showed no signs of being under the obligatory tyranny of a selfish despot. You can imagine these servants of Solomon giving commands. I need this. I need that. Do this. Do that. And none of them turned around and slumped their shoulders and dropped their head or huffed and puffed or sighed as if they had gotten a, a command that was too burdensome. They loved to serve under Solomon. They were happy. Go to do it and come back quick. What else can I do? They were happy. She couldn't believe it because most earthly kingdoms don't run that way. They were happy in their very souls with the state of things. They were happy with their placement. They probably laid down at night thinking, how could it be that I was chosen to serve under King Solomon? Again, Christ is even greater than Solomon. Besides the natural use of the term in that sense, I don't think she looked at them and was ascribing some sort of state of spiritual salvation to them. She was just saying these people are they're happy in the way that they serve. But besides that, throughout the Scriptures, this term is used almost exclusively to describe the spiritual state of those under the reign of the grace of God, that is, the Christians. In Psalm 2.12, 
We read, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Those who take refuge in King Jesus are happy. Psalm 84, 5, blessed are those whose strength is in the Lord of hosts. If God is your strength, then you're happy. You're the blessed one. Proverbs 3.13, the one who finds wisdom and gets understanding is happy. In Isaiah 30, verse 18, those who wait upon the Lord are happy. We, we tend to, to imagine waiting as anxious and tense and, and unnerving. We read the, the Scriptures about waiting upon the Lord and we think, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to wait upon the Lord. I want Him to be here. But the Scripture says that those who wait upon the Lord are blessed. It ought to be joyful to us to wait upon the Lord. <coughs> In Isaiah 56, 2, the man who keeps the Sabbath is blessed. He's happy. The Christian is described as blessed, characterized by spiritual peace and satisfaction in God so that he can rightly be said to be happy in God. Not just circumstances, not what's happening in the world, not because stocks are up or, or whatever. Happy in God. How can it be that I was chosen to serve this God? To be under the reign and the kingdom of this God? When all the world is, is in, in peril... I sit back as a servant of this God. How can it be? A bless, the blessed one is not constantly looking for the next thing beyond God. He's happy in God. Everything that happens around him, he's, he's trying to trace that thing to God or take that thing to God if it's, a, if it's an affliction. It's, it's something that the blessed one can pick up and run with it to God and have something to bring before the Lord because He's happy in God. The blessed one is at rest knowing the peaceful, all-wise rule of God in His heart. That's a Christian. He's the blessed one. <coughs> Next we see <coughs> the Christian is described using the metaphor of a tree. He's planted by streams of water. This is a Christian. He's like one planted by streams of water. What is more satisfied? Now this we wouldn't, we wouldn't think of in, a, in a, a, a rational sense. That it actually contemplates satisfaction. But what's more satisfied than a tree planted by streams of water? What is more nourished than a tree planted by streams of water. What's stronger than a tree planted by streams of water? What is a place more fitting to the needs of its nature than a tree planted by streams of water? What's more secure for the days to come than a tree planted by streams of water? A, a little... A little dumping of water here and there well, might get a plant or a tree through the day or for the next several weeks, but a tree planted by streams of water, he's secure and strong and nourished as long as the stream flows. <coughs> the answer to those questions is the Christian. The blessed man is more satisfied, nourished, strong than this tree. Because see, the Christian 
though the metaphor is he's like a tree. The Christian is one that's he's not merely been planted by the stream. He's not merely been planted beside the source of life and nourishment. A Christian has the spirit of Jesus Christ planted in him, in his, very, his own soul. We don't stand beside the stream. We've got the well inside of us, welling up in us unto eternal life. So the Christian is satisfied in God, nourished by God, strong in his God. There's no place more fitting to the constant need of our souls than the God who dwells within us. No one is more secure in the days to come and for all of eternity than the Christian because he's planted by streams of water. He's got the Holy Spirit planted within his own soul. The Christian is the blessed man. And the Christian is described as prosperous. In all that he does, we see this in, at the end of verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. This doesn't mean that every business started by a Christian makes millions. This doesn't mean every garden planted by a Christian produces more than that man can, and his family can eat. This doesn't mean that when a Christian puts one seed in a hole, two plants grow or anything like that. It doesn't mean every time he buys a car, he gets the best car and it lasts forever. It doesn't, that's not what this means. What this does mean, understood spiritually, is that there is no proper endeavor under heaven that cannot be used by God to prosper the soul of a Christian. So that when we prosper, we prosper. And when we fail, we prosper. When we're healthy, we can prosper. When we're sick, we can prosper. In times of great peace and joy, the Christian can prosper, but in times of great suffering and affliction, the Christian, Christian can still prosper. In all that he does, he prospers. Why is that? It's because, again, we're planted in God. We have the life of God in us, and He's the one who promises that He will sanctify to us our highest joys as well as our deepest distresses. The Christian can go through the deepest sorrow in this world and come out the other side better than he was when he went in. Because God can take that and make it prosperous to his soul. In all that we do, we have that potential. We can prosper and grow. This is a Christian. One who's happy, satisfied, at rest in his heart because of his God. The Christian is nourished by God, strengthened in God, secure in God. He finds prosperity in all things because his God has promised to work all things for his good. Alright, the next question is, what lifestyle is expected from the Christian in this passage? Well, the lifestyle or the conversation is described first with three negatives. This is all found in verse 1. First, according to his walk, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not pattern his life, walk, according to the counsel of the wicked. 
Now, when we think of the counsel of the wicked, this could be the advice that they give from their very mouths where they say, we think you ought to do this. Or it could be found in just the example that they set with their lives that, uh, that someone might look at and draw out of that counsel. Everybody is preaching their gospel. And everybody is giving their counsel. And everybody else is hearing everybody else's gospel. And everyone else is observing, at least hearing, everybody else's counsel. We're always involved in that interaction because we're seeing and watching things in the world. But the blessed man, he doesn't take the counsel of the wicked whether they say it or whether they they live it by example. He says, I'm not using that to tell me how to live. Now when we think of the wicked, very often because of that word wicked, we think of the most vile of people. But again, this is the psalm is describing, describing two types of people, the blessed man and the wicked, the Christian and the lost person. This could be the most moral and upright philosopher in, in the world. Who, who gives counsel, who gives advice in, in anything. This could be the, the, the most upright and earthy mom on the internet. She's given some counsel. Here's, here's how I think you should live. Here's, here's how you ought to order your home. That's not counsel from God's Word. That's counsel from the wicked. The blessed man does not take, it, does not take counsel from the wicked. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't get his pattern of life from the counsel of the wicked. Next, he's described according to his standing, nor does he stand in the way of sinners. This refers to one's fixed position. See, once a person begins to take counsel from the wicked, it's not long before they find themselves standing in the very same way of the wicked. You can take counsel from across the street. You can observe and discern counsel from across the street. But the longer you do that, eventually you're going to find yourself on the other side of the street standing in that very way that you were taking counsel from. The wicked doesn't do that. Because he doesn't do the first, he doesn't do the second. And then he's described according to his seat, the third. (coughs) Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The, The blessed man, the Christian, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. This is descriptive of his place of resting along with his newfound companions, the scoffers, those who directly oppose God. There's an advancement. You begin to observe and learn the counsel. And you think, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little bit of counsel here and there. I'm I'm just learning from this person or that person. But the longer you do that, the more likely it is that you're going to eventually become standing with that person. Now it's not just you taking counsel from them, but now it's, it's y'all giving counsel to others. You're, you're with them. And the longer that you do that, the more likely it is that you're going to find yourself sitting down and at rest and at comfortable and in an, in an entire assembly of people who are not just giving bad advice, but they've gone so far as to actually scoff and oppose God. But the blessed man does not do that. The Christian does not do these things. He doesn't get his life, instruction, or patterns or habits from the world. Therefore, the Christian does not find himself gathering among the sinners 
And therefore, the Christian never finds a place of rest amongst the scoffers. That's not his place. Those are not his people. A lot of people like to say, well, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Right. He told them they were sick. They needed a doctor. Those weren't his friends, his closest companions. He went with them because he wanted to save them. Not because he was at home and comfortable with the way that they lived their lives. Then the Christian is described according to his delight. It says his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He gets his counsel from the word of God, God's law. He meditates upon it until it finds root in his heart and begins to shape his life. Having begun with the law of God, he'll never find himself among those who consistently transgress that law, nor is he in danger of becoming an enemy of God. That, that law and that delight and meditation upon the law of God sets up a barrier, a guardrail for the Christian. We can safely conclude that a Christian, one who is truly blessed, will have their lives shaped by the Word of God, they will be those who are surrounded by the godly and they will delight themselves in God and in the ways of God. This is the way God describes a Christian. <coughs> this is the way God describes the lifestyle of a Christian. When God describes something, He's not giving us a suggestion. He's not saying, well, if you want to be the best of Christians, this is what you'll look like. He's not saying, if you want to be a Christian, this, this is an, one option among many. He's saying, this is what a Christian's like. If the, if the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey, then a Christian is one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How's your meditation going? God says you'll be meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. How's that, how's that going for us Christians? It's what he said. Well, you know, when he, when he said that, he, he meant what? He meant he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates upon it day and night. That's what he said. His, his description ought to shape our expectations. See, the problem is we've been taking counsel from the wicked. And therefore, we've actually begun to stand in the way of sinners in saying that what God said... He didn't actually mean it that way. He didn't mean, mean it for us to take it that far. And we've, we've, we've learned how to come up with this weird concoction of, of a professed Christianity that says, I'm a Christian. I don't stand in the way of sinners on Sundays. But every, every other day of the week, I get my worldview, I get my counsel, I get my perspective on everything in the world from the world. If we've seen anything over the past several years, we have seen that Christians respond to everything in the world exactly like the world. There is no difference. There might be churches out there, but I don't know of one church that said, who gives a rip why there is a virus... Let's just get together and pray that God would have mercy upon our nation. Who cares why it's here? I don't know of any. I've had one man in this church, one man who requested that we have some extra times of prayer. One man. And I had to turn him down because I thought it would be 
depressing upon his soul. Because I knew if we did that, it would be me and him. We respond just like the world. We take our counsel from the world. We stand with the world. And if we're not careful before long, we'll be, we'll be scoffing just like the world. The way all the ways of God, that's foolish. That's silly. You won't accomplish anything that way. Based on Psalm 1, could you be found guilty in a court of law for being a Christian? Where does your counsel come from? Who are you standing with? Again, a lot of times we think of the wicked as those of, as, of the most vile. You know, so if we talk about feminine modesty, you know, how should a woman dress? Well, don't take your counsel from the wicked and what we think as, you know, the, the harlots in, in, in Las Vegas. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't get my from that. Okay, but where do you get it from? Where does it come from? With with men, where where, where are we getting our description of manhood from? Right? What what does it mean to be a man according to God's word, not according to the world? I don't I don't care how black a man drinks his coffee. That's not. What does that have to do with being a man? Where do we get that from? Nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with manhood, but we're, we're, we take our counsel from the world. Right? Well, the world says a man looks like this and acts like this and walks like this and talks like this. That doesn't come from, from God's Word. What does God's Word say? That God's Word says that a real man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. When I was growing up, Dad used to play with me a little bit, and he would hug me, and I would I would flex real hard, and he just sort of to uh, you know titillate my young man pride. He would say, "Man, that's like hugging a tree." How many of us men would not not like to be sturdy and immovable as a tree? How do we get there? How do we get to the place where we are immovable, regardless of what winds blow in the world? How do we get there? Meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. That's how you get there. That's what God says. How do we become women who are strong in the homes? That It doesn't matter what comes from the outside, what comes from family, what comes from inside your bodies, ailments, sicknesses, trials, sufferings, pain. How do you get to the point where those things don't rip away your faith? You meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night and delight yourself in it. And come to know your God. Those are the people who are not driven and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Because their noses are in the Word of God. They don't have all of the answers to everything in the world. And the Bible doesn't say that we need the answers to everything that's happening in the world. We've already got all of the answers to all of the questions that need to be asked. But we've taken our counsel from the world. Well, we have this, but we need some more. We're actually going to need some more information. Could you be convicted of being a Christian? Are you a scoffer? Are you a scoffer? You say, well, no, I would never open, openly mock God. I'm not a scoffer. Well, you are a scoffer if you say that you're a Christian and then you walk out in the world and live in a way contrary to what God says a Christian would look like. You're a walking, talking scoffer. You're saying that God is a liar. He don't know what He's talking about. 
I'll, I'll tell him what a Christian is. I'll tell you. Now, some of you, I know, many of you, would say humbly, as far as I can tell, this does describe me. And that's not a prideful thing to say. You say, I, not, not without error, but I, I don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. I don't stand in the way of sinners. I don't sit in the seat of scoffers. I, as, as, as poorly as it might appear, I actually do delight in God's law and in His Word. And I do consistently and persistently have the very Word of God circulating in my <laughs> mind throughout the day. It, I, this is not a description of, of perfection required of a person before they can call themselves a Christian. But you can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want this to sound like a sermon where I just tell everybody, hey, you thought you were Christians, but I just want to, you to know that I don't think any of you are Christians. That's not the case. It is appropriate to say, that describes me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And if you can say that, then you ought to give glory to God and praise Him for His grace. Don't, don't discount or discredit the legitimate work of God. We, we dishonor God when we do that. We dishonor God when we do that. We, um, it's one of the, actually one of the most dishonoring things we can do to live in a constant state of, of, of discrediting the legitimate work of the grace of God in us. As if it were prideful to say, God, you're clearly working. That dishonors Him. We ought to give Him glory. As it is to doubt one's salvation, as if our sin is, is, is piled higher or can... can overcome the, the atonement that has been made in Christ Jesus' blood. We doubt our salvation. Well, I don't know if I could actually be a Christian because of you know, these sins that are still present in my life. That dishonors Him. That, that's a, a dishonoring of what Christ has done. Where, grace, or where sin abounded, grace has even more abounded. You can't, you can't out-sin the, the atoning blood of Jesus. We ought to praise Him, not discredit Him, but honor Him for His work of grace. Some of you can remember when Psalm 1, verse 1, described you in the positive. You can say, I remember when I walked according to the counsel of the wicked. And I remember when I stood in the way of sinners. And I remember when I stood in the seat of scoffers. And you don't have to say, and now I am the, the, the picture of perfection of the opposite extreme. All you have to say is, I was like that, but I'm not anymore. That's a work of grace. You ought to praise the Lord that God has done that. Others of you might say, well, that doesn't describe me. When I think about that, my, my worldview and my way and my, my, where I'm comfortable in life, you say, really, it's not in the things of God. It doesn't have much really to do with God at all. It's just me. It's my friends. It's... It's news feeds, it's, it's uh, pictures, reels, 
blah, 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 wherever, wherever people are getting their stuff. You know, that, that, that's where I'm really at home, is when I have the world just pouring into me. And so you might hear me, and because I've raised my voice and furrowed my brow, you think, oh, I, what you're saying is right, what you're saying is right, I need a new bed to do better. That's not what I'm saying. If you read this and you say, based on this description and what I know of my own soul, I'm not a Christian, the last thing I want you to hear is, you need to do better. Because you'll, you'll do better all the way to hell. That doesn't save anybody. Remember, the, the blessed man was blessed and is blessed prior to all of this. It's describing who he is, not describing what he did to become blessed. It's because he is blessed that then these things describe him. <coughs> you don't need to do better. But if you think in your mind, you're right, I need to do, I'm not a Christian, I need to do better, that is an admission of guilt. Pick that up and run to Christ with it. Don't leave it here. Well, I admit I admitted, and then now I need to quickly move my mind along because I don't like to think of that admission, and I don't want God to know that I've actually admitted. He already knows. Pick up your admission and run to him. That's what we do. We take our admission and say, God, I know that I'm not a Christian. I know that I've never been regenerated. I've never been born again. I'm as lost as the day I was born, naturally. Here. And He saves. You don't need to do better. Take your admission of guilt to Jesus Christ. The Bible says God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God laid upon His Son the sins of His people. Every single one of them. Lay them upon Christ. If you will run to Him with your guilt, you will find that guilt has already been laid upon Christ. And laid upon Christ, the Father struck His Son. I read a phrase this week that I think I'm going to adopt. Vicarious damnation. He struck Him. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He put Him to grief. Christ volunteered for that. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ stood in our place and took our sins and was punished for our sins so that His righteousness could be imputed to us so that we can be blessed for His righteousness. He's punished for our sins. We're blessed for His righteousness through faith. You go to God. You say... I'm lost. I'm, I'm throwing everything on you. The ball's in your court, God. You save me. There's nothing more I can do. You have to claim Christ as your substitute. And God will take care of the rest. God takes it from there. As a matter of fact, if, 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 if you're even moving in that direction... To take your guilt to God. God's already carrying you. He's, already, he's bringing you to that place. Don't hear this as a moralistic sermon or this series as a moralistic series. We ought to be holy people. And if you're a Christian, you want to be holy. But if you're not a Christian, you're, you're, you're damned. You're headed for hell. 